Peace. Welcome to another episode of Bootstraps. I'm your host, Anefriesian. And I'm going to have to be a little transparent on this one. Um, getting ready to release this episode with uh, Lamu Coker that I think you guys are going to really enjoy and love. But I want to take some time to acknowledge the context in which this episode is being released. Right now, uh, the nation is going through it. You know, we are in the midst of a pretty heavy situation that there's no other way to describe it than just racist and evil. Um, So the past couple of weeks have been particularly heavy, you know, for black folks. And it's brought brought about a lot of sadness and a lot of anger simultaneously. Um, sadness for the victims, sadness for you know the lives of Ahmad Arbery, which was unfortunately taken a couple of months ago, but the story really broke a few weeks ago and reached national attention, um, really driven by social media. Um, and then you had last weekend this kind of interesting juxtaposition of what happened with Amy Cooper in New York and the, the wickedness that she tried to unleash by lying on a black man who had just simply asked her to put her dog on a leash in the place in which her dog was supposed to be on a leash. She lied and called the cops trying to provoke um, police to come in and to harm this brother. And when we, when we all saw the video, we instantly knew what she was trying to do. And we knew what she was trying to invoke. And what was um, tragically ironic was on the same day across the country in Minneapolis, you had the cops doing that very thing that Amy Cooper was trying to um, provoke. Yet a benign situation, cops show up and for no good reason. They abused his brother, George Floyd, and eventually choked the life out of this man, literally. And it's all captured on camera. I'm sure at this point everyone's seen it. But it's in this context that this episode is going to be released into the world. And so I wanted to take time to acknowledge it. And I just listened through the recording of this episode again. And uh, one of the through lines and one of the things that popped out I think it's something that's really important for us right now and in this the, the moment that we're all living through. And that, that message is we have to always keep moving forward. Like there are times that are just going to suck. There's no way you could spin it. There's no positive angle you can put on it. Um, like it's just horrible to see innocent people have the life choked out of them by other people who just lack humanity, decency, or or anything that's um, remotely connected to morality. Um, Watching that happen again and again, it sucks. But that said, we have to keep moving forward. If you think about what our ancestors endured, if you think about, you know, being brutally taken by the millions against your will forcefully brought from Africa to here 
all of what happened through slavery. But then you still had Harriet Tubman's, you've had Frederick Douglass's. Um, you continue on throughout history and you look at the beautiful things that we have produced and brought into this world and into this culture um, in spite of all the brutality we have to live through. And that's because we just have to get up and keep going. So I want to acknowledge the weight that everyone is feeling. I'm feeling it too. Um, I have had to take some time where I've stopped watching the news. I've been slow to respond to certain text messages and phone calls because I needed to take time to kind of lick my wounds and kind of sit with the weight of this moment. But we can't make our home in this emotional place. We have to move forward. And I think um, listening to the Moose story, you'll, you'll hear a really funny, smart, hardworking black man talk you through his journey. But the subtext is through, or that's, that's underneath his story is that of persevering and finding joy in spite of the difficult situations you have to live through. So uh, thanks for joining us for another episode. Let's get into it. All right, everybody, I want to welcome you all to another episode of Bootstraps. Um, like every guest I've had so far, I'm definitely excited to uh, talk with this brother and have you guys get to hear his story and his wisdom that he's acquired on his journey. So why don't you tell, tell everybody your name, where you live, what it is that you do, bro. Hey, peace, everybody. My name is Lamu Coker, uh, originally from Hartford, Connecticut, but uh, I've been living in Brooklyn for about 15, 16 years now, and I work in uh, media partnerships. Huh, that's what's up. That's what's up. And who are you working in media partnerships for? Uh, you mind telling everyone? Yeah, uh, Google. Ah, this is not, not, not too uh, small of a company. It's a nice little size to it. Small joint out of, out of the West Coast. <laughs> hey, you know what it is. Don't even start with that coast, <laughs> with that coast tripping. I'm trying to be polite. <laughs> so, uh, you know, doing media par- partnerships, though, that seems like, you know, it's not necessarily little roles. Like, um, you have to negotiate some pretty big deals. Am I correct? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, I, I like it because it puts you in the middle of a lot of different things, of like a changing environment, right? So you're always trying to find ways to create value for your company and another company, right? By looking at some things that are completely disparate and say, hey, I think, you know, if we partner with this group, this might work. Or if we try these things, this might, you know, be beneficial for both of us. So you've you got to be creative, but like understanding the business framework that you're working in and understanding the landscape, say, hey, I think I can create value here by doing X, Y, and Z. Right, right, right. I mean, that's dope, right? Because it's not, it's not, you know, it's not a formula. It doesn't sound like you come into work and your job is the same every day. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it changes often because things in the media change often. You know, with this pandemic, there's going to be a lot of companies that don't that don't make it through by the fall. Uh, it hasn't really, you know, hit. I mean, everyone's feeling it right now, but we'll see the long-term effects coming like later this year. So it's like, how do we in this changing environment continue to create uh, value for our partners? And it's, it's an everyday thing where something new pops up and you got to like, oh, we got to pivot now. Right. Right. And so what is it you think that makes you uniquely suited to be able to uh, do this type of role and to thrive in this type of role? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, what makes me uniquely suited? I mean, I, uh, 
I think about, you know, where my background is, how I got into media to begin with. And I've always, when I was younger, I wanted to be a filmmaker. Um, but, you know, like many uh, children of uh, immigrants, they shot that down immediately. It was like, nah, you need to get a regular job. So I've, I've always <laughs> had that in my mind. Like I wanted to get in the media, I wanted to get in the film. So, you know, and I was coming up, I was coming up in the, the high school in the late 90s and 2000s when, you know, that, that first tech boom. So that intrigued me a lot also. So understanding, you know, being a, a film lover, but also kind of raised within the internet age, that there was a natural convergence of the two that I was, was naturally a part of. So right. you know, as I thought about my career, I was like, all right, where my career? And I've been, I, I, thankfully, I've been lucky enough to be strategic enough to, to always say, okay, how do I want to position myself to get to, I don't know exactly where I want to be, but I know the components, I know the, the piece of the cake that I want in the cake, but I don't know what the cake looks like yet, you know? So how right. do I combine these two things to always remain passionate, but remain relevant in, in my interests? Right, right, right. And so what did that, you know, look like for you early on? Like, I'm sure it's, it sounds like it's a, it's a road that you kind of invented. It wasn't like, you know, here's this just clear traditional path. Yeah. Because I can just go do these things like becoming, you know, a banker or an accountant right. or a school teacher or any of these other roles that are more, you know, established and have been around for a while. So what did that look like early on? Right. So, you know, if you go back to I've been working since I was 13. My first job was picking tobacco uh, in, in a tobacco field. <laughs> what? Bro, when I tell you it was real, it was real. And like from that day on, I was like, I'll never ever have disrespect for a lot of these um, uh, South American and uh, Latin American brothers who come up here who, to work. Right. Because right. when I tell you, it, it was the hardest thing I'd ever done. And these cats were just knocking it out. Yeah, so, right. so that's starting from an early age. I saw, like, the value of hard work. And I, you know, my, my mom's uh, from Jamaica. My dad's from West Africa. And, you know, they all, I mean, they'd be crazy if I told you their full stories of how they got here and, like, their family situation. But, like, we got here and we made it, right? So yeah. earlier on, I was, I was working from an early age, cleaning dorm rooms, washing dishes at places, uh, you know, picking tobacco. So I picked up that, that value of hard work. But then I was like, you know, what do I care about? And ever since a young age, my dad used to get those uh, Columbia House sets where he's like, you buy for yeah. 99 cents, you got 11, <laughs> you got 11 movies. <laughs> right, right, right. So, you know, <laughs> we always had mad uh, VHSs in the house back in the day. So I used to watch a lot of movies. And that was something I was always interested in. So by the time I got to high school, you know, I, I went to work at a movie theater. I worked at Blockbuster uh, once or twice. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah like you know, quit one day was like fuck y'all, and they came back like, yeah. like the next summer. Like excuse me, my bad. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Um, uh, but you know, I was always doing that. So when I got to college, I started as a film major. My parents wouldn't let me apply to like film school proper, but I got in the University of Connecticut, and I was like, let me be a film major. And when I was there, like I took a bunch of film classes, but the program was very limited. So I was like, yo, I gotta, I gotta. This isn't enough here. So I created my own major. Called, um, I call, I think called it mass media marketing at the time, and I took uh, the film courses, the business courses, uh, communications courses, and core courses on the art school to combine them all and got it approved. So you know, I was from very early on like, yo, I got to make my own way because it's not going to be a set path for me to do what I want to do. Um, com right. Combined all those things, and you know, I, I enjoyed the classes. I met a lot of different people you know, who will be on a lot of different paths. Um, at, during those courses and they really enjoyed it right. but when i graduated i was like oh i don't it was i graduated december of 03 i was like oh i need a job and you know my parents don't have money so like i went home for like two weeks my parents were like yo what you doing <laughs> so I was, I was applying <laughs> for jobs 
and I got a job offer doing like some inside computer sales for a company based out of Chicago. But I mean, I'd be in Connecticut and I took that and, you know, I did it for a year and a half just to pay some bills. But bro, when I tell you I was broke, I was broke. I was sleeping on the floor right. on the same block as the abortion clinic. You know, like, right. you know, my apartment was, it was crazy, man. Like just, just trying to make it, you know? Um, right. And I applied for a job on Craigslist that was like, you know, media in New York. And I got the job and it ended up being uh, the first hires out of, for MySpace in New York City. Wow. wow, wow. Okay. So yeah. let's, let's take a stop right yeah. there. Cause there's been so much hustle. So first of all, you invented your own major. Yeah, yeah. So anybody that's listening, like oftentimes, you know, roads are not really established paths. We can walk them, but sometimes, you know, we see things differently. There are things that we want. And the established path is not really forged or set up for our success, especially as black men. So sometimes you got to have enough ingenuity to figure out, like, yo, what can I go get? And that is one thing that I I appreciate about immigrant populations and, like, their first generation that are raised here because they haven't kind of lived under all of the U.S. BS. Mm-hmm. They can see the opportunity for what it is, right. and they're like, "Look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna apply my hustle and grind and go right. get it." So I think that's dope. At a university like UConn, you're like, "Look, I'm still gonna put together my own major, and I'm gonna use my mouthpiece to get it sold in and get it accepted." Right. But then the next piece, so you, you're living, you know, you're on the East Coast, but then you took a job working for a company in Chicago. So when you took that job, were you, did you move to Chicago, or did you do it from New I, York? I did it from Connecticut. Connecticut, but like I would go, I, oh, we would go to Chicago every once in a while for you know big meetings and stuff. We go to Chicago, um, but it was in Connecticut, right. like you know about an hour and a half from where I was, where I grew up. Okay, wow. Okay, and so so then you did that for a minute. You're like, all right, I'm still ain't making no money, you know, or I'm, I'm broke. You making money because you you know, and then you ain't making <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so now you you landed you landed MySpace, yeah. and and was that in New York or you come out to that the was New York? Yeah, that was New all York. right. Back. So that was like uh, like the end of 2005. Um, so I, you know, got that, um, and, you know, pieced out that, the, the job immediately, went to New York and my space was awesome. I mean, it was, I was one of the first four people hired in New York. Um, oh, and wow. at the time, I mean, a lot of people, younger cats don't remember this, but at the time my space was like five X what Facebook was. Um, it, right. Facebook was barely a competitor to us at that time. And um, yeah. because, you know, we were, and we were in the, the music scene, we were in the film scene really heavy. So a lot of like yeah. uh, working with a radio station would be a big thing. Working with all the new, uh, all the um, the film studios who wanted to promote their films on MySpace was a, was a really big deal at the time. So uh, you know we went and did that, and um, and it was it was a lot of fun. But it was just it was a it was a mess, man. It was well, not a mess, but like it was a startup. Um, and, right. And if you had technical problems on East Coast time, oh, uh, the engineers weren't waking up till early on West Coast time, so you had to wait a couple hours. <laughs> So there was no right. like you know when you were jammed up on the East Coast you were jammed up for a good couple of hours and it was it was it could be tough sometimes but you know typical typical startup business and um, I was there for only about a year or so before I applied to a role at MTV Networks at the time and uh, ended up getting that job and taking it and that that's kind of where my I think my career really started. Wow, I mean, but there's so much there's so much hustle right so from picking tobacco at thirteen. To leveling up, and now you're at 
MTV. And when you landed at MTV in what, 2006? 2006, yeah. yeah. Wow, wow. That's what's up. And so what, what, was, what was that like at MTV in 2006? So I think MTV in 2006 is what Google is in like 2020. In that, like, it was the the place in media to work, and it was like the playhouse of all media. Um, you know, wow. like, it, you know, we had mil- multi million dollar uh holiday parties, like, you know, people, you know, all the cool shit. Like, I remember running into Master P in the elevator, and we had just like starstruck. Uh, <laughs> and I remember, like, <laughs> like, a, like a really young Rihanna at the time. Um, she was still cute back then, but like, yeah. I should have yeah. shot my shot. Yeah. I should have shot my shot. <laughs> Yo, I, 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 would, I, would, I wouldn't be here. So I wouldn't stupid. be here right now, brother. If I shot my shot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All that you stupid. Um. So, uh, and it was a fun time. This was like right before the iPhone dropped. And I think about. I mean, I, at the time, you didn't really. It wasn't a big deal. Um, it was a big deal, but it wasn't like game changing when the iPhone dropped. But like from a media landscape perspective, like things started to shift at that point. Where it was like, oh, you can now like you know sell a lot of ads, like working ads, on this phone platform, and people were really using it to you know for a lot of different reasons. Um, yeah. So we were there at the time when that dropped, and like saw the rapid change, and we're really ahead of things. So we were some of the first. We did some of the first digital upfronts, which is like uh, like when you buy uh, media for a year ahead of time, uh, MTV. Like right. I was a part of that uh, that team that did that. And, you know, now that's it's standard practice. But at that point, it was, it was really early. So I saw a lot of the big shifts in media really early on. And uh, I really enjoyed it. And I got to, you know, dab my hand in the business side of film, you know. Um, right. And I, that's what I really found interesting. And, you know, going to L.A., meeting meeting studio executives and, and seeing how they thought about it was, was really, really uh, important to me at the time. You know, so I was at, I was at wow. TV for a couple of years. Uh, really, really enjoyed it, and had a. I had some great, great managers there too. And I can't like over. I can't. It's hard to overstate how important like a good manager was um, at those days in my early like you know career shaping my time. Yeah, yeah, and so like you know that's a that's a that's an ultimate key right there. That's a jewel that I want to stop and double click on for a second to you know give a little advertorial to anyone yeah. who's listening, especially if you're early in your career. Um, you know. I had a pretty epic manager, and I actually, I'll, uh, you know, I'll name drop him. You know, my man Hank Mercier, mm. and he's now the GM for Method North America, mm. you know, natural yeah. soaps and cleaning, yeah. or whatever. So I work with, I work with my man, you know, when we we're at Clorox, and he came in and he was like, "Man, you're gonna have to work harder than you ever worked before, but if you do it, like I got you, you know, because I wasn't a blue blood. Right. Like everybody I was working with went to Harvard or Stanford or Wharton with their MBAs, and I had my undergrad." coming from San Francisco State, and he was like, I don't care, you smart, you got talent, but you got to put in work, and I got you. And I did, and we did some really amazing stuff together. And I haven't worked for worked for my man in 10 years, but we still talk at least once yes. a month. And I'm not lying. Like, we check in on a regular basis as my career has grown, his career has grown. We've just stayed in touch, and I haven't doubled back to work with him, but he's served as, I learned so much in working for him, and then I continue to use him as a sounding board. And, you know, he was a white dude who didn't grow up how I grew up. He wasn't even one of those white dudes who, like, pretended to be hella black. He was just like, look, I get you. I fuck with you. I don't care that you're black. Like, I love your story. I want to support you in this very non-condescending way. And I think oftentimes we have a hard time trusting people who aren't from our community um, and thinking like they may have some ulterior motive. 
Well, all I know is this dude has become one of my best friends, and he's still the best manager I ever worked for, and he's one of my advisors in helping me navigate my career. So when you have a good manager, it makes a huge difference. Take advantage right? of it. Yeah, it makes a huge and difference. And this builds confidence. It builds your confidence, too, you know what I'm saying? Because you know where they're coming from most times. They give the critique you is it's all like constructive criticism. But you know they're not just being you – know, you don't have to worry about whatever alternative models they have. And that, that, that's so helpful right. in, a, in a young, young uh, person's career, you know? Right, yeah, you can't get better without getting critiqued. Right. So, but oftentimes, you know, and that's the other part, you know, we get gaslit. I think corporate America gaslights yeah. everybody. Through my lived experience, it gaslights black folks, both men and women, more than anybody. Where it's like the stuff that's gray, where it's not technically a violation, but they act like it's a violation in, in their tone and aspect. It's like, wait, are you, like, reprimanding me or... Right. Are you giving me a compliment? And it's just like, nah, you know. And he just keeps in this this gray space. So you you get you get into this habit of like shutting down or shutting out anything negative that people have to right. say. But you have a good manager, and you can trust one hundred percent. Like when they're when they're checking you on something or criticizing you on something, and it's coming from it's a real good place. Exactly. That's actually how you grow. You can't grow and get better right. without that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So so you're sitting at the like the pinnacle of media in the mid 2000s uh, hip hop was still is in his last throws of you know i think having some real deep kind of reflection of the culture you know i wanted them i wanted them heads so i still listen to hip hop on a regular basis i listen to a lot of new of cats, course, yeah. but yeah, some of this some of the stuff that's in the mainstream and like yeah i mean it's, it's is this is this pop music or is this like what what it's, is this? But you know, <laughs> the Ziggy era just evolves, man, and so does you know the, the underground scene. So just continually, like I said, every time guys like hip hop is dead, I'm like, actually, you're not listening to enough. You think it's dead? It's just it's evolving. Yeah, no, nah, it's nowhere near yeah. dead. But you're 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 back. At, you know, you're you're still in the last throes of when really dope hip hop was still in the mainstream, right. and you're working at you know this media yeah. playhouse. It's kind of like the epicenter. So, yeah. I mean, without you know giving any trade secrets or ruining any reputations. Yeah. Give me one or two like crazy, like juicy stories from from that time period. Something that's really memorable. Uh, crazy, that's like juicy? A, a happy. Um, yeah, I mean, like the holiday parties. Like I said, the holiday parties were bananas. Just like, like you know, like I said, multi million dollar. We would rent out basically a concert venue in New York City, and I, remember, I think I think Run DMC was there one year. I, I can't even remember all because I was I was half faded too. Um, <laughs> um, right. Um, it's it's just a, it was just living your best life. I mean, it's it's hard to 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 give away the secrets without people figuring it out. But like, the, the, yeah, the, yeah. The so thing you see at the holiday party, you know, going in and out of the bathroom, you be like, oh, really? <laughs> you be like, oh, this how you get down? <laughs> okay. Right. <laughs> and right, even, right. Even, yeah. We even when you were part of, the, even when you are, you know, you got work friends, you, you know, you part of the culture. You still, as a black man, you still somewhat reserved. You can't, you can't fully indulge in the way these cats indulge. You know what I'm saying? Because like the yeah, repercussions no, come down a whole lot different than they do for other folks. You know. Oh. Uh, keep it a buck. So that's that is another going back to this like you know criticism point we were on a couple minutes ago, where how valuable it is when you have someone you can actually right. trust, because you're walking around on eggshells yeah. oftentimes, right? Trying to make sure you don't end up on the wrong side of anything because right. you don't want to be. You can't be as relaxed as other people. Exactly. Can be you just you're doing place. you, but like you see other people partying. You know, like the alcohol will be flowing day and night in the office, outside the office. You just can't get down in the same way that other folks get down because you know, you know, if 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 you all were to get caught evenly, 
you would probably take it, it would be heavier on you than it would be any anybody else. Because one, if I if I lost yep. my job, like I don't have much backup. My parents don't have money like that, so I I'd have to you know go yep. home and figure something out. So I know I can't I couldn't I could never go as hard uh, socially as these cats. Yeah, um, but you know professionally, yeah, I was I was I had to go extra hard because of that. Right, right. So I have a, I actually have a juicy story I think I can yeah. tell that I have, actually happened at the same time. So from oh four to oh six. Mm-hmm. I was at a small beer company in San Francisco called McKenzie mm-hmm. River. And um, the hood would know their brands. The hood and um, and uh, college kids. So one brand they had was still reserved. Yep, yep. 211. Yeah, um, and then the other brand they had was Sparks, which was the first alcohol energy drink. I remember that. I remember, that. I remember that, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I was there for two years doing marketing from 04 to 06. So around the time. You know, you went through your whole MySpace on the MTV situation. And I had to go to the printer to make some copies. And there was a, there was a group of young women uh, that, you know, all in their, like, mid to late 20s, easy on the eyes. They were hanging out in this one woman's queue. And they were having a conversation as I walked by. And no lie, all five of these women are hanging out holding a conversation about fellatio even head and i'm like "Uh so i'm sitting there at the printer just like what none of of them are african americans like i want to say it was like um four white women and one filipino woman and i was just like i'm not participating in this conversation at all so i kind of do what i have to do but i i had like pressing deadlines i have to get some stuff over to fedex to get it overnight to east coast so this is in san francisco i have to hit that deadline for um in the afternoon to get it out for early AM delivery for right. East Coast. So I'm like, I ain't, I don't have time to kind of screw around. I can't come back later. So I, I'm overhearing this conversation. I get my copies done. And then I go to walk by. And they're like, what, Matt? You can't handle it? And I just kept walking. I was like, I'm not going to entertain yeah. it. I'm not going to act like, you know, I'm a part of it. I can only just think what would have happened or what, what could have happened. Right. Not right. would have. What could have happened if I would have engaged in that conversation in right. any way. And it was like someone here, someone complaining, like, yeah, Neff and a bunch of girls were talking about, you know right. what I mean? Or like, it'd be, it'd be like, oh, that's like, told Karen, like, you know, he would, he would blow the back <laughs> out and we were all offended. Right, right, right. For you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, now, I, I might have, I might have oh, yeah, that, that yeah, but right. nah, I didn't say nothing. I was like, man, I'm going to keep it pushing. You know, for a fact, you'd be like, because... I, I will cripple one of these. <laughs> but you can't, you can't jump in that conversation. Nah, not even, not even close. And I played it super right. straight lace and. My reputation when I was like all uptight, whatever. I'm like, you can call me what you want to call me, but you're gonna call me right, hey. Right, right. You know what I mean? Because like I mean, I'm here I for a reason. To, I got I'm here to, to be friends. Right. Yeah, that's real talk. And I don't, I don't have you know a safety net behind that. So that's dope. Though. I could, I could imagine. You know, I'm sure anyone listening can imagine what it must have been like to be at MTV. You know, in the mid 2000s, kind of doing your thing in yeah. media and music. Like, dope. It was, the, it was the epicenter. Yeah. Um, so. Before we go any yeah. further, let's 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 go back to like your childhood. There's this clear level of intellect and grind and grit that you have. Like and you said, you you grew up in Connecticut, yeah, like so in Hartford. <laughs> 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 North North End, North End, baby, North End. <laughs> That's what's up. So you North End Hartford. Like what was what was it like growing up there as? You know, a black man who's with a Jamaican mom and a West African dog. Dad. It was great. I can't even lie. It was it, it was great because it was a it was a, a, a I, so Hartford is, is kind of split three ways. Just like the North End, the South End, and the West End, right? 
in the north end is like I think it's like the fourth largest population of West Indians in America, outside of like oh, New York, Miami, right. and like one or two other places. Um, so it was like I grew up right. around like all black people, all West Indians of different you know different countries. It was it was beautiful, dog. You know what I'm saying? Like uh, you know, my school was down the street, primarily African American, but I go to church and it'd be like all West Indians, all Africans from all no. over. So I, dog, I love yeah. it. And you know, you know, we were we never had money. We weren't poor, but we never had money. You know what I'm saying? But that was that was everybody. Yeah. Like nobody really had money. Right. You know, you doing what you got to do. And I think um, part of it was like just the, the the communal feel of of how Jamaicans specifically take care of each other. You know, if you have a hard times, people will you know help you out, right? So, you know, and yep. when you have and when you're in good times, you help other people out. So my mom often um, often would have like a woman who just moved to Jamaica come in, like let's say, clean the house for you know. Twenty thirty dollars, right. not much, but just just clean the house, like do some right. little things. Something. So it's always just back and forth the community where you're always looking out. Uh, you know, people helped us out sometimes yeah. too when things were a little tough. But it, I, I loved it. And I, I thought we were, you know, I didn't think we were rich or anything like that. But I was like, oh, we, you know, we're, we're having a great life until I end up. Uh, I was in gift and talented program. And I got uh, recommended to go to this um, small prep like prep school for math and science for middle school, and. You know, okay. and that's when I went there, and it was cool. It was, you know, some a bunch of white folks. I never really hung on white folks before, but you know, good times, smart folks. Some folks I'm still really tight with, right? But like, I didn't, I, yeah. I had no perception of like what my part of town looked like to 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 somewhere outside of my part of town. So right. I, I'll never forget. Um, and this was actually, I think, my freshman year of high school uh, on the football team. I'm coming home late, and I was like, "Yo, can somebody give me a ride home? Like, I want to take the bus." And the dude was like, oh, where you live? I was like, you know, down in Blue Hills and North End. He was like, oh, uh, you know, we don't go over there. And I was like, I was like what, what you <laughs> yeah. mean? Like, that's where I live. Uh, and just that moment of like, <laughs> oh, wow, they, they, I live in the hood and I don't even really know it. And you, of course, you you see things growing up like, you know, little little gang fights, you know, little little shootout things. You know, somebody slaps somebody in the basketball court. And he's like, I'm going to be right back. Cat came back. T- no, I was right. I, come back 10 minutes later and, and start shooting shots it, it just it was just, right, it, was right, just right. it was what it was i never thought about it it's like you know somebody say all right nigga, what up and you just start running you know what i'm saying you just right you will be out the house the right. next day doing it you know doing right, similar right. things just, you know just kind it of was what it was. Yeah. I, I never even thought about it like i never forget this one time i was me my next door neighbor who we call my cousin um and my sister and we were walking home from school one day and we were just talking and I mean we see a crew of dudes walking up the street and you know it was whatever I mean we mind our business we like you know third fourth grade and we get up to the street Cornwall and Colebrook and we, we turn on the corners another crew of dudes right up the street like coming down and we're like alright whatever but then they started running at each other and they started, and they started fighting I remember I'll never forget this dude had a, a brown leather bomber on and somebody cut him with a knife and cut him from his left shoulder to his right hip, just like straight all the way down. Damn. Um, cut straight, I mean, like open up the, the brown leather jacket. And then I remember this girl screaming. I can never get the scream out of my head, this girl screaming. And me and me and this Kimmy, we, my, my next door neighbor cousin, we just ran. And then we turned back. My right. sister was standing, she was younger than us. She might have been like first grade at that point. We stand on the corner just looking, just like stiff. I never forget it because I ran back right. and I was like, "Come on, nigga!" <laughs> like, <I> was, <laughs> <laughs> it's go time, right, right, right. Um, but like, you know, right, right. I, I, in my head, it just kind of was what it was. Um, so yeah, when I was in high school and people were like, "Oh, you live in a bad neighborhood." I was like, "Oh, 
things go down, but it's not like that. You know what I'm saying? So having to explain the nuances of living in a black neighborhood, like you have this love and community, but yeah, it changes. You got some drama, but it, the love and community make up for it. Black parties in the summer, all that make up for it. Oh, you know, man, please. Like, so I would never ever like trade my child for anything. I have so many more happy right. memories and not, but there, there is some underlying, you know, PTSD oh, that yeah, comes yeah, with yeah, the two absolutely. for sure, you know, but like moments like, you know, that, that moment you just described where you saw old boy get, get his brown bomber cut, you know, from shoulder to hip. But yeah, it's also, it's also love. And I was talking to my brother the other day. He said he didn't realize he was poor because he remained so insulated in our neighbor. Our neighborhood was also broken into kind of three yeah. sections. And because he was the oldest and had to watch us, he didn't get to hang out a lot after school when he was in junior high and high school. So if he wasn't in football practice or he was baseball practice, he was just, yeah. he was watching us. So he didn't realize he was poor until he got to UC yeah. Berkeley. And he was like, oh, <laughs> right. even though we were right. dirt poor, right. right? He didn't realize it because you just in the hood with everybody and everybody kind of helped right. each other out. You know, there's nobody really balling yeah. like that except maybe some drug dealers. And you knew that that was money exactly. you didn't exactly. want. So it's, it's, you know, I, yeah. you know, I, I, I really enjoyed my, my, my growing up. I mean, I, it, it frustrates me going back now because, you know, in 2020, it's somewhat the same like it was in like 93. And I'm like, yo, what's going on? We yeah. like, we got to do better for the neighborhood. You know, we got to build up things. Things are, you know, it went like I left and it got worse and it got a little better and then kind of, you know, petered out. But like, it's, it's, I love my neighborhood, dog. Love it, love it, love it. And yeah. when I got to UConn, I met a, ran a couple of dudes that like I knew, I never forgot. It was my freshman year. We were at a party at UConn and, uh, you know, some new cats come in. We don't really know. It's, it's whatever, you know, we, we chilling. Um, and one of these cats that, that tried to rob me from my bike when I was a little younger was up on campus. This had named Marshall. All right, he got some pie. He got killed a couple years ago. But uh, he came up to campus right. and was popping off at this dude from LA who used to be a boxer. Siddiqui. Um, <laughs> I'll never forget Siddiqui. Man, I was like, oh, what's up, Marshall? What's good? He was like, oh, you know, chill out here trying to get on these hoes, whatever. Uh, in the party, you know, Siddiqui thought he was a tough dude, from boxer from LA on the East Coast, was popping off a little bit. And this cat was like, oh, where? And I was like, yo, Siddiqui, chill. I know these dudes. Like, chill, chill, chill. Man, he went up, said something. When I tell you, Siddiqui got knocked out of his shoe. <laughs> <laughs> he got hit so hard. Like, hold that. Off, dog, in the middle of the party. And I was like, yo. Anyway, we're running in the cast when I was at UConn. And be like, oh, they were like, oh, you from the North yeah. End? They was like, oh, you good money? I was like, oh, you know, I was what I was. You just grew up where you grew up. I wasn't repping it. I wasn't like, yo, we grew up hard. Like, I'm from the North End, whatever. I'm from Blue Hills, whatever. Um, but it, just, it was yeah. what it was. So I say all that to say that, like, yeah. I enjoy my childhood. There are things that you saw that you can never forget, but like, you know, it I, it made me the person I am, and I I'm not saying I wish that yeah. on everybody else, but like, it it makes you strong. Period. Right. Yeah. There's there, there's definitely yeah. benefits. Like you you definitely wouldn't wish it on anyone else. And like you know, so you know, people don't know. You know, you know you're you're married now. You have a little yeah. young one, little beautiful yeah. young boy. You know, you wouldn't want to raise him that way. But that said. What what are some of the, the the benefits or the values as you see it, you know, growing up how you grew up in the north? Um, I think community, uh, community, and that. And I live in a black neighborhood. And I live in Bedford Stuyvesant in Brooklyn. I mean, it's, a, it's been heavily gentrified, but it's still a black neighborhood. And I think that's the reason yeah. why I still I still love it. Because even if you know, a lot of, a lot of different kinds of people are moving in, it still looks and feels yeah. like a black neighborhood. That might change over the next decade, yeah. but it is. So you know, I want to make sure yeah. that like you know wherever I move, the the neighbor knows my son. You know. The, the people down the street know my son. Mm. Even the church that I don't even go to on my block, they know my son, you know, because it's, it's a community. Right. People will take right. care of you. This morning, my wife went out to church and, and uh, made like 500 meals for uh, people who might need uh, food 
through the pandemic. Um, and, you know, things, little things like that, what we can do in the neighborhood, that it reminds me of my right. youth and growing up um, that, that, you know, I really enjoy and I strive to raise my son in that type of community where, you know, I, like, like Frederick Douglass said, it's, it's easier to raise strong boys than to fix broken men. Speak so on it, man. I'm always like, you know, what can I do to support him, make sure that he feels loved, uh, make sure that there's people around him that love him and know him on the street. So that if something were to, God forbid, anything were ever happen and I'm not around, they'd be like, yo, Lamou, so-and-so, you know, got in trouble or, you know, he got hurt, we're going to take care of him. So that's the things, like, I think about now. Yeah. Um, and then how I'm trying to uh, position myself as a, a neighborhood elder at some point, you know what I'm saying? Like, people don't think about that, like, but, like, yep. neighborhood elders are OG. They know things, bro. Um, Man. And, and I think a lot of people are like, oh, you know, I'm smart. I, I went to school here and there. I'm like, that don't mean shit if you don't, if you don't know the neighborhood and what's going on. So don't overlook those type of roles in the neighborhood, you know? Yeah, no, so you keep, keep it a buck. Like, youth is wasted right, on right. the young, right? Like, there's, there's some stuff that you just right. won't know exactly. without time. And not everyone who puts in time learn those things. But if you don't have time, there's certain things and certain wisdom you just won't right. know. Period. And I was I was thinking about this other day, and we even talked about this other day. You know, I'm now in my early 40s. You know, marketing executive. I have a really cool job at an amazing company, and doing my thing. And I have a team of folks that I lead, and yeah, all the status that kind of comes with that. Well, I'm in a room and I'm running meetings. I'm still using stuff that you know right. my grandmother right. taught me, <clears throat> like straight up wisdom that she had from just like being around, or um, that's as I learned from my uncle, who was no G on the block. Like is, there's a lot from my neighborhood that, um, and from my family upbringing like, that I still use to this day. And if you can't, if you don't have elders and OGs in your life who you can go to and get wisdom and gain from folks who've kind of been down the path before you, like, yo, you, you are, you are destined to fail in some right. part of your life right. pretty miserably. You know what I mean? Right. So, so community is definitely, you know, the, the big thing. Anything else, you know, about like, so your, yeah. your work ethic, was, did that come from your mom and I mean, dad? Both, both? Like where, where, both, where do you get that from? You know, you know they, my, both my parents worked when I was younger. My mom was a social worker, teacher, and ended up being a principal before she got out. But like, you know, seeing her work hard, trying to get um, her, she was, she had a, she got her master's when I was younger, um, working, you know, nights. And then when I was in high school, she was at UConn. We were both in uh, taking stats at the same time. I remember, so we were studying together. Uh, so Dope. you know, seeing her just work, always work. You know, do her regular job, come home and take care of us. And then after we go to bed, she would study for her own pursuit of uh, you know knowledge and, and trying to better herself at all times. And when I was, um, I think it was two thousand six, she ended up uh, getting her PhD, and I was the only one who could go with her at the time. And I'll never forget the day they came out and said. Congratulations, Dr. Coker. Like I broke down, dog. I was, I was. Wow. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I was yeah. falling in tears. She's yeah. like, she's like, man, you be all right. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, working, <clears throat> continually working hard, seeing how my family and there was my mom's side. I think it was uh, uh, nine, and then another ten on my dad's side, and like their all their paths and how they made it to to wherever they are. It's 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 inspiring, man. And you know, never. And I think always being positive about it. Because things would happen, you know, like, you know, your mm-hmm. brother or sister might die and my, my dad and my mom would be broken down. But it's like, you know, we always got to keep on moving forward. Like, we can't let our emotion, how we feel about someone treating us at work or what somebody might have said, stop us from moving forward professionally 
and you know from a familiar point of view like you just gotta keep moving and um and i think that that's yeah, so that agility true. kind of is what I am. I think I have right now. Just like no matter what the setback, it's always a setback, but you got to keep on running. Just keep on running. Yeah, no, I, I respect it. I had, a, I had a moment where you know my inner monologue because another thing I have from the hood. But Jay say he said I can see a side eye in my sleep. <laughs> like, bro, I can I can see a motherfucking side. I've been able to see a side eye from a young age. Whether you actually show it or not, it can just be mm-hmm. coming out your pores. Mm-hmm. I can feel it. When you know people ain't really rocking with you, they don't have right. their best interest in mind. And so, I was walking through the office. This was a uh, this is a few months ago, just before we you know were living under this pandemic situation. And you know, I have my own little mug that I, that I take with me to I leave at the office, and we got pretty good gourmet coffee, a little bougie coffee, you know, at the office. And so I'm walking, drinking my cup of bougie coffee, coming from a meeting. I'm a little annoyed by you know some of the shadiness that I perceived in the meeting when people just weren't being honest. Um, and I'm starting to get frustrated and I, I take a look, you know, and our office is pretty wide open. There's a lot of natural light beaming in and I'm walking down the steps and I got this, like I have my laptop in my hand. I have my little leather bound, little notepad in my hand, cup of coffee. And I'm just like, look, bruh, you were raised by sharecroppers who escaped what they were living through in the South. Got to South LA and raised y'all there. You've been shot at for something you didn't do. You've been chased by pit bulls. Like you done went through all of this stuff. You grew up running fades on the block. And now this is your reality. Like you can't get so caught up with your frustration. You know what I mean? In whatever you're dealing with right now, you need to have this positive spin and understand where you are at in context of where you've come from and realize, yeah, you still may face some things that are annoying, but you can't give in and succumb to those things and be all right. hot tempered. Because I mean, maybe my my grandmother and my mom's wildest dreams were like, yeah, my son walks into this corporation, leads this team and makes a very decent living to just think. Right. You know, I they literally pick cotton. When I say they were sharecroppers, they picked cotton up until they moved to LA. And a big part of the moving to LA was the dude who owned the cotton field that they worked on, that they were sharecroppers on, he had got a mechanical cotton picker. And the next season, was it going to be able to offer them work? And so, like, all right, we finally got to go ahead and pull the sugar and get out of town. You know, so it's like, as black men, as black folks in general, black men specifically in terms of bootstraps and who we're trying to talk to with this first, you know, series, we can't mm-hmm. lose it. Exactly, exactly. You know what I mean? When when we yeah. face whatever, it's like, yeah, we're gonna have adversities. Yeah. Acknowledge it, but figure out right. how you're right. gonna keep exactly. moving forward. Exactly. That sucks. So you you come through your you come through your childhood. You go to UConn. You do your thing, and then you know we, we know kind of how you had that grind from Chicago to then New York and MySpace yeah. and on the MTV. So then. What what was your next big move? Like after you left? Uh, yeah, so I mean, MTV. I was there for almost five years, and I was I, I really enjoyed it. Like I, I had no problem with it. I had a, a boss that, like you said, I'm still in touch with now. Uh, we're still good friends, and I was interested in kind of getting further into uh, the technical, the tech side of things, um, uh, and not in media. So I was like, I could apply. I applied for like one or two jobs. Um, like to, it's kind of hot startups at the time, like Foursquare in New York. 
but I was like, you know, I, I still like it here. And I was like, maybe I remember I was talking to one guy. He was like, yo, I'm a part of this thing called MLT. We're trying to send black people to, to business school. And I was like, what, like, what are y'all talking about? Um, and, and he's, he introduced me to MLT and I was like, Oh, that's what's up. Um, I think I applied, but I didn't get in, but I was like, I don't, I don't really care. I'm still going to do this. So I just, I kept on the right. grind. So I, to this day, I still get MLT emails. They think I'm part of the program, but I'm not. <laughs> and people are like, I know you do MLT. <laughs> right. I'm like, no, you right. don't, but sure. Let's, let's run with it. Um, <laughs> yeah, right, right, yeah, right. right. Hope so, that. um, I, that's when I got to in business school. And I think roughly around the same time, my, my boss had just completed her MBA, executive MBA at, um, Columbia. So we were talking about okay. that and she was like, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, um, give you a recommendation. So I applied to a couple of schools the first, uh, uh, one year, I think this would have been me starting 2012 and I didn't get in and I got, uh, I didn't get in, I think I got, you started in 2010. I would have started in 2012. Uh, if I if I got in, so I didn't get in, um, and it, that was a blow. I remember for the night I got the email, and I was like walking home. And I was like, damn, I just gotta, I just gotta like lock in for the next year, and and get these GMAT right. scores up, and, and get these essays tighter, and that's what I did. I just locked in for the next year, end up getting to the school that I wanted to get into, Michigan, um, and that was right. uh, that was like March 2011, I want to say, um, March 2011. Yep. Um, so. That was the next move. So business school, just to go back and, and focus on one, I wanted to one build a, a bigger network of folks from outside of the East Coast, and two, um, right, like, kind of study up what's going on right now with the larger media landscape and the in the tech landscape. And I think it was a great time to do it. <clears throat> so it was in Michigan. So I started in Michigan in uh, fall 2011. Right, that's what's up. And this, for you know, those of you guys who don't know, that's where actually Lemu and I met. We came in the same time. The interesting thing, I applied to go to Michigan a year before as well, and I got waitlisted, and then I didn't get off the waitlist. And so, you know, I could have been like, you know, all of my feelings or whatever, just like buckled down, had another great year at work, so my resume got fatter. I took the GMAT again, got my score higher, reapplied, and then got in. And I think it's it's cool it worked out the way it did because, you know, I, I think our class is uh, – you know, kind of a legendary class and it's a very particular type bond of a particular group of men um, that came through, you know, when we were there, um, which is also a big part of the birth of this podcast, right? It was like, it was was the first time in my life that I had a a really tight group of friends that were all black and brown, did not, they were not raised with silver spoons in their mouth. And then they kind of moved right. as a unit, you know, because I, I yeah. had boys growing up, like some, some of which I'm still tight with. And we, you know, but we used to have to, you know, right. <laughs> somebody got somebody got into a situation, you know, like what? I bet I'm there. And, you know, we roll up and right. whatever happened, happened. <laughs> but, you know, being being at Ross, when we came through being in Michigan. Um, yeah, it was, it, was, special. it was special because, you know, yeah, we had a, we had a real we had a real tight bond and we were all men of color. You know that understood each right. other's plight. Right. You know, it was every there. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of understanding that, and loyalty. That's one of the things that I, I take most out of Michigan, just like that understanding of, of the of the brothers in that class. Like we walked in the door, just like oh, we right. know what it is. Like yeah, we, we we're good here. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, that's real. First of my undergrad, even though Sam can say I loved it, loved it, still still love it. Proud alum. A lot of us weren't majoring in business, so I'm at. The, the school that's 
at least at the time I was there, it was the most diverse university in America. Um, we had folks from all over. We had a bunch of black and brown people there. It's where black studies was started. We had a mural of Malcolm X, like at the student union. It was, you know, we had Dolores Huerta, Cesar Chavez. Like we had a lot of culture and multiculturalism there. Um, but when I walk into my business classes, it would be just me. You know, so it was it was it was dope to get to Michigan, and it's all the, you know, it's an elite program, high ranked. Every company came and recruited there, but right. then there was all of us um, who got the who got the role, which helped helped me realize that we're not alone. And then, in terms of like someone you'd call a real one, but that's intentionally, you know, going to get an education and trying to do some things on the legal side. And, but those stories aren't really celebrated and told, and that's a big part of what we're trying to do here as well, is bring those stories to the forefront, because we aren't as rare as we like to think we are either. I mean, statistics are against us, but th- there are black folks out there that are doing things that are not Uncle Tom's and soft showing. So we need to get that story out. So, so, so talk to the people. So you, you come through Michigan and... Uh, you graduate and then you know what what are you what are you doing after Michigan and how do you how do you go from Michigan to Google? You should go to Google right out of yeah, B- so like business job, school. I got the job offer two weeks after graduation. So in, in the B school world, that's really late. Um, but like early right. on in the process, early on, you know, we get a B school, you start recruiting within the next within the first three months. But I knew, you know, I didn't want to work for anybody. Um, I was like, nah, I'm to, I wanna be really selective about where I go because like I said, I'm on a charter pathway that, that combines media and technology. Um, and, you know, I, I talked to a couple companies right. where some people called me from, like, some, you know, engine company in Indiana. I was like, sorry, bro, I can't even, I can't even entertain this. Uh, that so, I mean, that's so yeah. weird turning down interviews for jobs. And I didn't have anything else in my pocket, but I was like, this is, that's not the right move for me. Um, and I don't want to be, right. as, as much as I did need the work, I didn't want to be someone who just the first job all money ain't good money um, so I so because of the relationship I built when I was built when I was in B school um, I, I did get the Google offer and went to work almost immediately but I think I started June 10th um, in New York one again I was broke I never really had money like that so I was like I, gotta, I don't have time to take the summer off and chill so I was like I gotta go work so went to work there and, and loved it Google's a great company. I was doing, you know, basic sales stuff, but still, basic sales in Google was still a little different than, like, sales and some other places um, because it's just right. it's, it's a unique experience. So I was at Google for almost three and a half years, led the Black Google Network. Um, yeah, if you play research group in New York, was a part of, like, a ton of panels and volunteerism there. Um, and uh, a, a kid that was uh, in Ross, Michigan in 2012, got a big promotion at Verizon. He was like, yo, can you come over? help me build this team and at the same time one of our other Michigan brothers Adler uh, got the same offer so we both went over to Verizon together um, so I left Google to go to Verizon just to try this opportunity that was really interesting somewhat in the lane where I wanted to go it was there we were at I was at Verizon for about 18 months and it was terrible because the kid was a terrible manager uh, and terrible manager <laughs> yeah wait wait yeah, can can you speak? I think your mic might have moved. Can you speak think, yeah, more directly into the mic? Ended up being a terrible manager, um, and uh, you know, Verizon was just like, didn't know what they wanted to do. We just this it was really confusing. They were confusing direction. So like I said, I was there eighteen months, and I left there and went to Twitter. And, okay. Uh, all right. Hey. 
what was what was what was that like? So so you go in yeah. to Verizon, and it's like boom, you know what good management yep. is. You've had it uh, before. You're not getting that, so you're like, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna peace out from this situation. Yeah, you land on so, Twitter. You know, I think when you go to Google, you do definitely get spoiled in when it comes to things like onboarding processes, like internal processes and documentation. Like it's really tight at Google, where kind of they, they bring you in and make you drink the Kool Aid early. It's like, all right, this is how we do stuff, and it's really efficient. So like day one at Verizon, I was like, oh, this isn't efficient at all. Um, this is not this is not what I thought it might be, and then it went downhill from there. But um. Uh, right. Dr. Twitter and Twitter is an amazing company. Like it's a, it's a really great company. Uh, you know, at a high level, I love what they're doing. I still I'm a, I'm a Twitter head. I've been on Twitter head since 2008. Um, so that's kind of one of my like ideal companies that are like, combining media and uh, and technology. Uh, unfortunately, I right. had a manager that early on I was like, oh, I don't think this chick rocks rocks with me. Um, and yeah, and you know, and I was, I think this is, this is my fault, because I was trying to, I was doing good, I was doing a good job, like, doing my, my actual work, but, like, the signal she was sending me was not uh, saying that, oh, I see the work, I see the work you're doing, but, like, her frustration with me was born, I, I still don't, not saying racism, but, like, she, I was on a team of all white women, and, yeah. Yo, 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 Moo, take, take a quick pause, I'm having... Having a hard time hearing because this is it's a rich part of the story, and yeah, okay. yeah, I think the mic okay. mic might okay. move again. So, yeah, there you go. You loud and clear. She was insecure about herself within the organization, and that came down on me. Mm-hmm. And I'm, and at yep. the same time, I'm sitting here, like you know, grasping that air, trying to figure out what's going on here. Like, why is this relationship bad? Because throughout the organization, I have a great relationship with everyone else, uh, but just this woman. Um, and yeah, so I see right. got fired from that job, and this is, and I wanted to, you know, kind of push this and say, oh, I think this is deeper than. The regular performance. This is not like the numbers are off. What's going on here? Um, and I should have. I have to. You know, all right. So, and I hate to, to make large judgments, but white women often uh, play victim when they're confronted about their own actions sometimes, and and fall back to victimization yep. often. So, you know, you confront them on something, they'll be like, "Why are you confronting me?" And you know, they'll say something something controversial, you come back uh, with appropriate energy and they'll play victim. And this, and this, this I, is one woman yeah. who I would see that happen often. Um, where I, I wouldn't say it'd be tears, but it'd be close to tears and you'd be like, why? When you confront her about things. And that insecurity about herself and her role, I think, ended up coming down back on me. And, and that's why I ended up getting fired from there. But it was, it was really frustrating. Um, but, you know, Better things. I ended up getting uh, another yeah. job at partnerships at Google. So now I'm back at Google. Um, yeah. Now I'm back at Google and, and you know, really loving it. 
Yeah, well, triumphant. So, like, kudos to you for, you know, dusting your shoulders off, remaining positive, and, and moving forward. And you literally are on to bigger and better things. But that does happen a lot, and it's something that folks need to be mindful of as they're navigating their careers. Especially, you know, I think you and I deal with um, something similar. Not only are we black men, we happen to be big-shouldered black men. And, you you know, you walk in, your stature impacts people in a in their own mind. It, it, it's their shit to carry, right? But they try and hold us accountable for their their own stuff. And I had a situation one time, I have so many that kind of rushed in my head, but I, I had a situation one time where I had a manager who was just not good at her job, and I literally used to have to teach her stuff. Like, she would come to my cubicle and sit down and ask me to teach her how to do something that was pertaining to our craft. And I would have to draw it on paper, like step by step. Um, and this woman was my manager. And then I remember I, rec- I was recruiting for the company back at Michigan, um, trying to get other MBAs to come join the company. And she went and told HR So I was a part of the official recruiting team. She went and told HR like two months after the trip, like, yeah, you know, he does good work, but like he just went missing for a couple days and I didn't know where he was. So (laughs) HR pulled me into a little side meeting. like, hey, this is not a formal meeting. This is not a reprimand. We think you're doing great. Your review is great. Like leadership think you're doing great, but do I have a question? Like, it was brought up that you just went missing for a couple days a few months ago? And I was I was shocked. And also that I was heated, but I was like, you know, you can't lose your temper. And so, you know, I just calmly told the story, like, oh, no, I was back recruiting. And she was like, I still remember, like, yesterday, the, the woman at HR, she tilted her head to the right. And she was, because, like, like, cocked her head in disbelief. She was like, you recruiting for the company? I was like, yeah, I'm on the official Michigan recruiting team. We actually had a very successful event, and blah, 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 blah. She was like, okay. She just closed her notepad up, and she was like, this is over. And the conversation ended. Right. She kind of went on about her business. And I was like, all right, I need to get up out of here. Now you got you got this person who's now actively lying, but she was intimidated and uncomfortable because every time I walked in the room, she right. knew that I knew right. more right. than she did. You know what I mean? And so... Now this this person is in a position of power, and I have countless stories of, mm-hmm. of that same dynamic of, you know, um, and unfortunately it happens to be with white women, and not mm-hmm. only not exclusively, but disproportionately it's like white women in this position of power who are feeling uncomfortable. And and um, and, and, and just to be clear, like you know, of course I made my mistakes, but I you know I, I take one hundred percent accountability for the things I, I always do wrong. I, mean, I, th- I think it's probably my biggest strength. Like I take accountability for everything. But there's things going on here that I'm like, I could not right. explain. And, and right. yeah. You put your numbers like, up. I could not explain. And, and that, that bothered me. That still bothered me to this day. Like, you know, what, what exactly was that? And I think that's when, when you hear about black people saying, yo, racism makes you crazy because if you, you don't fully understand it. You don't fully understand, like, where this is coming from. Mm-hmm. But you're always wondering, like, was that, you know, is she? And those type of questions. And that's yeah. that's that's what bothers me. There's right. things in, in a dynamic there that like was way beyond job performance that that still bothers me. Yeah. 
Right. Well, well that, that's what that's what I call. That's, well, I didn't invent it. You know, the term gaslighting. I learned about this term uh, a few years ago, and I was like, oh, that explained so much in the game. For those of you who are not familiar with gaslighting, it comes. It's a it's a term from uh, that therapists or psychologists use. It comes from this film where apparently there's. I I still haven't even seen the film, but there was this there was this wealthy man who had this staff of servants at his mansion, and this is back before electricity, so the lights inside the house were ran off a gas lamp, and he got all of his servants to conspire with him. They would turn the gas down on the lamps in the house just a little bit each day, and the wife was like, "Yo, are the lights dim?" And everyone would pretend like they didn't know what she was talking about. Long story short, they drove her crazy. So they all knew it was a thing that was actually happening. What she was perceiving was real, right? but it was subtle. And so everyone just acted like it wasn't a thing, and it drove her nuts. And that's a term that people use in relationships all the time. And then I saw, I don't know if it was like Harvard Business Review, Business Week, some legitimate publication um, I saw it in the past year. They had an article about how corporate America, they're the biggest, like, the relationships that managers have with their employees. Corporate America produces the largest amount of gaslighting in our society. You know, so it was something provocative like that. And I was like, you know, I was, I was prone to believe it just because of my experiences. Like, those are the things I right. call, like, in the gray, where it's like, are you reprimanding me? Like, because let's, let's talk about, like, what is it that's... Right. Right. Wrong here, and no, I'm not saying that. I'm like, okay, right. Help me understand, because I too like to take accountability. Right. So, anyways, yeah, man, that's that's a that's a that's a heavy situation. But you know, I mean, what she also didn't know is you right. picked tobacco right. when that you were was thirteen, me. right? Right, right, right. That's what's up. And so now you know you. Prior for you doing your thing, you're at Google negotiating yep. deals, living life. You know, you got beautiful wife, your beautiful son, living in bed style. Like life is life is good, but it's still it's still a grind. But life is good, you know. Life and is crazy, that's but a beautiful we, we're thing. still here and we're still gonna be all right. So, yeah, right, right. That's what's up. All right, so to wrap this up, man, I have uh, four questions. You know, I have to I have yep. to get you to answer before I let you go. And the the first of which is. You know, tell me a t- tell me about a time when you know someone went low when they did something dirty, and you um, chose to take the high road. And the fact that you took the high road, it actually turned out. Yeah, to I think uh, probably going back to that Twitter situation. Like as my my manager who um, at the time didn't train me, uh, it was actually like a contractor who trained me because she was not in the office and then wasn't really helpful. So someone else trained me. Um, was blaming me for a lot of things, uh, things that I had learned because that was the person who trained me. Um, and me not calling that out, I think I, I didn't call, not to embarrass her, I didn't call that out in some later meetings that I should have. Um, um, and I think that, that, uh, that was frustrating at the time. But I think what I learned from that and, and kind of what came from back from that is that like, Everyone I worked with there um, still supports me and recommends me for other things. So I still have a, a strong network internally right. um, by not bad-mouthing this woman it, at the time uh, when I right. easily could have and people might have understood. Right. But um, that's the time when I think someone went low and I went high and it still kind of worked out in my favor. 
that's what's up. So don't don't burn bridges. It is so it's so real. And I can't front like I have not burned quite a few. Yeah, I, I didn't yeah. detonate these bridges. But, Look, I, I, but, I completely. You know, sometimes um, you gotta burn that bridge. You know, sometimes you gotta do it. But like, are you learning something yeah. every time you burn a bridge? Yeah. You know. Yeah. Right. <laughs> All right. Uh, next next question. Uh, what is your your personal definition of success? I don't care if anyone else agrees with it, but what's the definition of success for you to kind of guide your actions? Uh, being happy and having a happy family. Um, I, I think there's a certain contentness, uh, a certain level of like comfort and knowing that you are happy and things will be okay. And I think I I get that from my, some of my family members. Um, you know, my older um, you know. I have aunties in the 80s and close to 90s right now. And the OGs, uh, my family is a pretty older family, but like they are, of course, they got pains, they got things going on every day. A bill might be due, but they are happy. You know what I'm saying? And, and getting to a certain yeah. age and being like, you know what? I've lived a good life. I've done what I've done. Um, and I, I know I'm going to have a big funeral. Like that's success, man. Like, you know, there's, there's work stuff and then there's like after work, what right. happens? You have to continue living. So what's real? Right, so what's real? being happy, having yeah. a family that loves you and take care of you, that's success. That's you continuing what you're supposed to do by, you know, just raising a family. Then you're going to pass on. They're going to pass on eventually. But are you passing on that happiness and that willing, that, that drive to continue to be, to be happy? Dope. Dope. If you were to describe your journey in one word, what would I think it be? Agile. Um, just being mm. agile and and moving, going with the flow, but always in the right direction. Right. So you know, no matter what the, yeah. the winds come, you always you know ducking and dodging, but you make sure you keep on going towards whatever your goal might be. And I think that's probably my uh, my one word. <laughs> yeah, I love it. So you, even if you if exactly. you fall, make sure exactly. you fall forward. Right. Um, and then uh, last question. There's a lot of weight that comes with being a black man. Um, and sometimes I think it's uh, overemphasized, make it to where, it's, where it's all negative. Um, and that's far from the case. So what's the, what's the thing that you love the most about being a I mean, black it's, man? There's a, a lot of things to love about being a black man. But occasionally, it's just little things like you can walk into a room with some black men you've never met before. And you all, get, you all can dap up. And, and have conversations having a certain understanding, you know? Like, this, this, sometimes you don't even need to say the right <laughs> word. You'd be like, fam, you, you know what I'm saying? And they'd be like, yep. You've never met before. And the fact that we can walk up, you know, we all got the same dap and hug and all that. It's just it's little things like that that make me be like, all right, yeah, we're going to be all right. We're going to be all right. Yeah. That's that's beautiful, and I'm I'm not going to even add anything to it. Just repeat, right. you know, what you said. We're gonna be all right. That's dope, man. Well, y'all, I really appreciate you taking the time, you know, to sit down uh, and uh, chat with us on Bootstraps and share your story, you know, out there, uh, so we can get it out there to brothers, so they can hear it and hopefully draw some inspiration and some wisdom from it, so they can continue no to build in their own lives, man. And um, yeah, let's let's, let's get up to them, brother. Good talk for this podcast, so making making sure it pops. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, we're done here. Hit me with the Venmo. 